Welcome to Elite Team Athletics Podcast. I got my guy Q in here. I'm your host, Kyle Cognitori, and we have the pleasure of having former NBA player and current coach or player development, I should say, Greg Stiesma with us today. How's it going, Greg? Good, man. Good to be here. Glad to be here. Well, Greg, you're from Wisconsin, and so is Q. Yep, that's correct. <laughs> so you went to Randolph High School. You were state champs. You were sophomore, junior, and senior year. First team all state. I mean, you you really destroyed. I was looking back. You're averaging like five and a half blocks a game. Were you six eleven at that time? Yeah, I was six eleven. Like uh, I think by my sophomore year, I was six eleven, yeah. all of two hundred and fifteen pounds, about. So I was kind of this big skinny kid. Um, we had a really good we had a really good program. We had a really good group of guys that we grew up playing together. Um, Obviously, being in a small division, we only had 180 kids in our school or something like that. So we didn't um, didn't face a ton of guys like in our conference that could hang with us. And then once we got in tournaments and stuff, we always had some better games. But um, we were fortunate. We had, like I said, we had a really good youth program growing up, and we were the land of the Giants. You know, a, a question of mine, and this is just because I'm a super short person. I'm 5'11". I'm not tall. And... Um, for you, when you were 15, 16, to put on that much size that quick, were you scared you're going to be like eight feet tall? Uh, I mean, my dad was about six ten or so, so I never, I never really like felt that tall. Even when, even when I got that tall, it was always um, just being yeah. around him. Obviously, my whole life it was just kind of you, you duck through doorways and you just kind of tower over people and you don't really think anything of it. I mean, even like I said, out of our high school group, like we had. I think it was my sophomore year. We only had eight guys on our varsity, and only two of them were under six feet. Everybody else was six two to six eight, and then me. I mean, our our two guard coming off the bench was Ryan Telemann. He was six seven, six eight. Oh my god! And he was a two guard. What's in you the know? water out there? It's something. It's it's the Dutch blood or something. We, I mean, there was a lot. Most of the teams like we played, their biggest, their center would be maybe six five, and Jeez. we just. We had our, our backup our backup center to me was six foot eight. Our point guard was like five ten, two guard six four. I mean we were we were a college sized team, not strength and physicality wise. We were height wise, we were a college team, big college team. <laughs> yeah, you were taller than my college team. Same. <laughs> well, so going into that, the recruitment process, being, you know, this high school legend, having this crazy career. What was it like being recruited out there? Wisconsin, they're known for keeping their kids. Who else was talking to you during all that time? Um, I mean, this was, man, dating myself a little bit. This was a long time ago, and recruiters, like, still send out letters and wasn't texts and phone calls, and I didn't have a highlight tape on my Instagram page and all that stuff. So I got I got letters and stuff from, from about everybody. I committed, I committed really early. Um, growing up a Badger fan my whole life and then to get an opportunity to play at Wisconsin was kind of a no-brainer dream come true situation I was grew up 40 minutes from Madison so it was like I said pretty easy but Kansas Kentucky were kind of both in my in my head back then like it would have been cool to play at either one of those uh, North Carolina could have been another one um, but I didn't I didn't explore those options real close even to talk to many coaches or anything but I was pretty set in Wisconsin when I got that chance. You know, we just had, uh, and somebody you'll know from your alma mater, Jordan Taylor was just on our show the other day, and he was sitting there talking about his regret of, I shouldn't say regret because he loved Wisconsin, but he said that for him personally to get to the next level, he felt like Notre Dame would have been a better fit for him. If he could have done it over, that would have been his best chance at pros. Do you, I mean, you made it to the pros, so that didn't really matter for you, but your journey probably would have been significantly different, do you think? matching your skill set at those other schools yeah I mean I was I've never been a scoring guy I've always just been a, a role player and um, even in high school I mean I didn't I've never been an offensive guy or offensive threat um, and I don't know I'm a, I'm a big believer in if you're good enough to make the league you're going to make it like situations can come and go I mean it's a lot of guys have 
a short window at times, and it took me three or four years to get my MBA opportunity. I mean, my first, I didn't have an MBA workout my first year and a half after college. I mean, and, and I don't blame anybody. It wasn't, I wasn't ready at that time. You know, I was an overweight, tall white guy, big, slow white guy from Wisconsin. And I got my body in shape and um, honed up some skills and played, played well in the right opportunities to show guys that I could play this level. And, um, so I think it's, it's hard to say, like, I don't, I have no regrets about going to Wisconsin. I, I went through a lot of stuff while I was there. I, you know, battled some depression and missed out actually on the second half of my sophomore year and a coaching staff that, um, never wavered, stuck with me. Our, our trainer from college, he, he saved my life like straight up. And so to, to think of how that situation could have gone in a different place, um, is, is a little more scary for me than to just say that if I would have been somewhere else, I might've maybe made the NBA a little sooner, but I don't know if I would have made it out of college. Well, you know, let, let's break into the college stuff so we can talk about the depression deal, because I know that's something you're very passionate about and you love telling your story, which is another reason why I'm super excited to have you on here. Cause we've never had somebody so honest about a subject like that yet. Um, but so during your, your college career, you came in highly touted and things weren't going your way just because of, you know, you had the injuries. And, and then on top of that, you said you were battling the depression because of um, just like you said, you didn't want to go to class. You didn't want to do things. And, and why don't you tell us about that, that whole deal? Because I know that that is a huge <clears throat> thing for you. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, like you said, as a 17, 18 year old kid coming from a small small town small high school stepping on onto a basically a dream campus um you caught up in a lot of other things and um wasn't taking care of the things that i needed to i mean class was kind of a secondary for me not that i was doing anything special besides hanging out in the room just not going to class and you kind of get the depression that I, that I dealt with, everybody kind of handles a little bit differently, but I like the imbalance stuff, like some of the scientific stuff behind it um, can save for somebody smarter than me to, to explain. But I just know I was in kind of a little bit of a funk. Like I was just, I was a zombie. Like I've, I've said that before on a few different occasions, like I could put on a brave face. I could, I could act like I was fine. And then, um, just, you know, stuff just wasn't, wasn't feeling right. It wasn't going right. I slept a lot um hit out a lot didn't want to be around other people but then when I had to I could smile and pretend everything was all right um and then kind of I was delusional in, in a in a sense too of when I got to that sophomore season I wasn't taking care of my classroom stuff um uh, the arrogance of an athlete or whatever it was I was like oh everything's gonna come together these these teachers will still pass me just because I, I need to pass in order to play. And when that stuff kind of started to fall, fall apart, um, then, you know, I wasn't quite sure if I should be on a campus with 30,000 people and maybe I should just step back and, you know, maybe this basketball thing isn't for me. And uh, like I said, thank God for his intervention with, with the right people at the right time and got me straightened out and balanced back out. And, and then, um, you know, things kind of, leveled off for a while and not to, not to say that it was easy, easy sailing from there. You know, depression is still a battle every day. Um, you just learn how to, how to deal with it in different ways and better ways and more efficient ways. And so, um, you know, obviously I'm, I'm happy with where things ended up in my career, but, um, you know, I definitely didn't do it alone. Well, and to think about the pressure, and I, I want to, I, I mean, a lot of people, you're less than 1% of the, the population that's going to even understand what that is. Um, and to handle it at, like you said, 17, 18 years old, how did your trainer figure it all out? How, like, how did this all kind of go on? And it was it a lot to do with pressure? And Yeah, I think a lot of it was pressure that, you know, I kind of put on myself that I thought other people were putting on me. Um, again, that being from a small town, I thought everybody was, you know, everybody thought I was needed to do all these things. And when I wasn't maybe doing those things early on, it just caught up a little bit. Like I felt like I was letting people down. Um, and then just when you spend time with is when you spend as much time with, um, you know, a person like Henry, who was our trainer, like he's just, you get to know 
you get to, you get to know you better than you ever realize. And um, like I said, I could put on the the brave face, I could put on the fake face of the happy, and then uh, all every because every day, how are you doing, Greg? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Fine. Yep. Everything's good. And then like one day, he kind of pulled me aside. He's like, Greg, how are you? Fine. I'm fine. What do you mean? He's like, No, for real. Like, what's what's going on? Like, you're not quite yourself. I see some other things that are some red flags to me and like, what can you tell me what's going on? And, you know, it took a couple of those interventions for him to ask me really like sit me down what's going on before I, before I, before I finally cracked and told him, but, um, you know, thank God I did. And like I said, he got me the help that I needed to. He tried to help me figure some things out before, you know, kind of before everything was, was finalized with some classes. He tried to t- talk to some professors with me and, helped me get set up with some extra work, all that. And just, it was a little bit, it was just a little too late, too little too late at that time where I should have been getting help that I needed well before that. And he tried, he, he tried when it was probably would have been enough time, but I was just too stubborn to take it. But at the same time, at that time, it was, it was a huge stigma. You know what I mean? And it, really you were one of the first people to come out that goes unsung until it kind of blew up with Royce. And then it kind of got shoved under the rug and then, Kevin Love kind of came out, and now it's kind of becoming more normalized. But at the time, that was probably a huge, huge, huge deal, not only for you, but that atmosphere. Right. That was, you know, I was a little bit afraid of, like, telling, even telling our coaches, like, what was going on, like, what, what the real problem was. Um, because, yeah, I mean, especially when you get to college, you get to be, like, an elite athlete in a sense, you know, I was this – 6'11", 260-pound guy, like, there's nothing that's going to stop me from doing whatever, and, like, what do you mean, like, just, I just, I saw it as, like, it wasn't mentally tough enough to handle this at the time, and, um, you know, it, it was beyond that, you know, I think it took a little bit more, more out of you to, to admit it than it actually did to, to fight it, and once, once you kind of opened up about it, and even when we first, um, kind of started figuring out some solutions and moving forward. Um, I still wasn't sure if I wanted to say what it was. You know, I just took a leave from the team. And then finally the news broke, I was ineligible and it was still just, um, I'm on leave. And then I was kind of like, you know, I got to, if I can help this one person, um, that was kind of where it came down to was, you know, if, if I would have heard this story from somebody else, not saying things would have been different, but if, if there's a chance that it could help just that one person, it's going to be worth me telling my real story. And we appreciate you telling that story. I definitely think it helps people. Um, and, and I'm glad the NBA is kind of starting to make moves in the right direction in that aspect because I, I, I don't even know if colleges at the time necessarily had the, the right support system set up for people. And, and I don't know if they still do or not, to be honest. I'm not in that position to know. But I think that there should be options because I think it's a lot of stuff on your shoulders, especially at a young age. Yeah, but for it, sure. Even just, you know, even the – on the flip side too, like when stuff, when stuff is going right, you know, that's, that's one thing that doesn't get talked about a whole lot either, like how to handle success. I mean, that's, it's, it's harder than people think to, to win all the time too. You know, that's, that's a whole nother set of challenges that, that, that some guys can face. And um, yeah, I think NBA is doing a lot better job with it. Um, You know, with team psychologists, sports psychologists stepping in and just talking through, situation with the guys and I think when other guys can hear from another perspective or from hear from guys who've been through it um any little bit of relatable material just seems to really stick that's good that's good and I I, I know the the cool thing that I like seeing is you you did finish the team your senior year leading you know in blocks and stuff like that you had a you you finished out the right way and I know you're you're probably bummed at the time not getting your NBA opportunity like you said, you dug your head in the dirt and you knocked out some stuff and, and killed it in the right times to get your shot. Um, do you want to talk about some of your overseas experiences before you got to the NBA? Uh, yeah, I was actually thinking about my timeline here um, just the other day, and it's, it's, it's pretty complex. I don't know if we have time to go through it all, but, um, yeah, I mean, to my, 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 my rookie season, I started out in, started out in Turkey. Turkey. I, signed a, yep. I signed a two-year deal in Turkey. Um, on a low-end team, low-end paying first job. The second year would have been okay, but um, the first year was they were kind of taking a gamble on a, like I said, a, a big slow white guy from Wisconsin. Um, and about two thirds of the way through that season, I end up getting bought out 
by a team in Korea and went to Korea for about six weeks and finished their season there trying to make a playoff push. But another whole big scandal went down in Korea. So like a third of the guys got sent home. No, there was, we had the leading, I think we had one of the top, the leading scorer of the league that was with us. And at the time their rules were like only one American could play at a time in the uh, second and third quarter. And so um, I started with the other American the first quarter. And then the second quarter, he'd play the whole second quarter. He'd play the whole third quarter. I'd come in on the fourth. Um, and, again, we're trying to make a playoff push. And one of the guys got busted with some weed, I think. And then he told – he kind of ratted out a few of the other guys in the league. Oh, and there was just some drama going on. So I was the only American wow. then for, for a couple of games. And um, so then we actually won a couple of those games where I was the only American. So they maybe handed me an envelope under the table with a few extra, few extra yen in it, and um, then we got got some reinforcements and just came up a little bit short. But so yeah, that first my first year, I was kind of welcomed to the professional world of the business side, getting bought out, going to a team, high expectations for making a playoff push. I was supposed to be kind of the savior. Wasn't really playing a whole a, a ton, I guess, in the middle of the game. And then all of a sudden got handed the whole reins and we started playing well and got a little taste of success. And at that time I was started to actually make a little bit of like, it was, it was good money in Korea. And if you had like two or three bad games in a row, they'd send you home. Like they were, they were a revolving door at times. So I just remember like some piece of advice that I actually got from Joe Krabinoff's dad. He'd always just say, run like a deer, just run, just run. Good stuff happens when you run. And that's when I kind of started to realize like, you know, maybe I am a little bit faster than I thought, or maybe I can handle a little bit of this, more of this faster paced game. And um, that's when things started to click a little bit forward of like, I got a little more in the tank. And even in, there was times in Korea where me and the head coach butt heads a few times. So kind of as a, as a screw you and I'd be the, I'd win drills in practice. I'd hang with the guards for a few up and backs and our, one of our two a days a week, we did conditioning stuff and, I don't know if I was mad about something I'd run hard, which a stupid mentality to have, but that was, that was kind of where, what, where it led me. And, but then I kind of figured out like, Hey, idiot, why don't you do this all the time? And then maybe you can get out of these bullshit leagues in Turkey and South Korea. <laughs> well, then you started bouncing around at the, uh, the Sioux Falls Sky Force, right? Cause you had a couple stints with them. Like what? Yeah, so I actually, yeah, I came back that, so I came back that first season and I played the last game of the year with them. Okay. Um, I knew the head coach for the sky force at the time through Joe Krabinoff, like through my Sioux Falls guys. Yeah. And he was kind of pushing me to come to the D league. Um, like right. As soon as I got back from Korea and I was kind of like, no, I'm the season's over. I'm done. He's like, well, what if, in case you want to play next year, just, just come sign with us. So we have your rights for next year. And, I was kind of like, oh, well, I'm supposed to go back to Korea, but all right, like, yeah, we'll, we'll do this one one game thing. So I went for one game. And then that uh, that head coach, actually Nate Tibbetts, who's now an NBA assistant, who's – Nate's going to be a head coach here sometime soon. Um, so that was – yeah, that was my first stint with the Sky Force in the next season. Then I end up going back to Korea, got okay. cut after six weeks or so, came home, played in the D-League again, went back to Sioux Falls. They had a different coach. But then played that whole season in the D League that year. Got called by Minnesota. Training camp. Then the following season in Cleveland. Asked to get cut from Cleveland so I could go take another job in Turkey. Um, but it said here after that season. It said something about playing in the summer league too with the Grizzlies. Is that that's yeah? Not, yep. Okay. So that was the year. Says you did that twice. After my first year, I think I played summer league with the Grizzlies. Um, I think that was Blake Griffin's rookie year. That was the guy like six blocks on Blake, the one game, four games on, or four blocks on him or something, one game. And that's um, crazy. So I was just, I kind of had these little flashes. Like I had these little moments of like, Hey, you can play at this level. You just got to figure it all out. Like it's, it's not good enough to have two blocks and give up six other layups. Cause you're not quick enough laterally or you can't, be in the right spot defensively or you miss certain things. So it, it, it took a little bit of time to put it all together. Like uh, coach Ryan always used to like kind of joke, but 
kind of serious say that the big guys always had a little bit of a lower a slow, slower learning curve like took got took them a little bit longer to figure stuff out and he i've joked with him about this even after i'm like i hate to say it but man he was right he was right about a lot of things and <laughs> if i was just not so stubborn and whatever to listen to him maybe three four years before that then maybe things could have been a little bit different that way most people got to get out of their own way though too that's that's just normal life you're not the only one you know what I mean? That's just the reality. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, so I'm also going into that Cavs stint, you asked for your release to go back to Turkey. So let's let's pick up right back there. <clears throat> so that was uh that was the first that was the that was uh post decision. That was LeBron's first year that he had left. So Cleveland had this beautiful brand new practice facility. Um I was I spent that offseason, I think, in Madison or Sioux Falls and Madison. And so I didn't, I had a really good strength guy. I didn't have a great basketball setup. Um, so I went into that training camp, not in the greatest shape, looking back, like nowhere near where I needed to be, especially for a uh, Byron Scott training camp where you start out, start out training camp with, I think it calls it the easy run. It's like 30 or 45 minutes of jog up the length of the floor, shuffle, backpedal the length, shuffle to the, to the elbow again and then run the length. And we just you do that for like 30 minutes. And I was di- I was dying. I was dead after the first 30 minutes of camp. Like I, there was no way I was going to make that, that, that team anyways. And so that's kind of why that's another reason why we asked to get released a little bit earlier than, um, than the end of training camp. But, and you said that was at the start of camp. Yeah. That was the, the very first thing we did. And I know camp is usually about three, three and a half hours. So yeah, yeah you got a long exactly. practice beyond I, that. I we went from I think the easy run to um, to like a ladder style three man weave where it was like seven times back and forth, and then five and four, three, two, up and back, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So Man. I think I think I threw up one of those in between three or four times in between there too, and. <laughs> threw yeah, up what I had left and my calves were on fire then the rest of the camp I just remember like shooting jump shots like towards the end or after before after the after that first day and I was like I couldn't I couldn't go on my toes because I thought my calves were gonna explode and yeah I just I wasn't again I wasn't I wasn't ready I wasn't ready for an NBA training camp I wasn't ready for um I wasn't ready to be in the NBA yet and that's you know, that's where I think it comes down to like when you're ready and you have a real chance, like if there's a lot that goes into it, there's a lot of really good hoopers, but if you can't make it through a camp, you know, it's, it's tough and right or wrong. That's how it is. So, well, then you go to Turkey, then you come back to Sioux Falls again for another stint with Sky Force. And then is that when you get called up by the Celtics? Um, what was it? So that after that, training camp at Cleveland and I went yeah I took that job in Turkey spent the whole year in Turkey came back played summer league I think again with the Grizzlies Sounds and then that whole right. time that was the Grizzlies kept saying oh we're gonna we're gonna sign you we're gonna sign you when when Hamed Haddadi's contract's up we, we, we want to sign you we just got to get rid of him and then yeah but you gotta be got, so happy they didn't and you went to the Celtics that's yeah gotta, you gotta this be was even before that this is even before that and so then I just remember seeing on NBA TV because I was one of the two English speaking channels we could get over in Turkey that like Grizzlies extend Hamed Haddadi's contract for whatever it was, like all these millions of dollars. Like, Oh, I guess sweet. Yeah. They really got big plans for me. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, then, ah, what was it? Then the following, then that was the lockout year. So yep. we, um, we were really, I, I was only looking for a contract overseas that would allow me to leave when the, when the lockout ends. So I go to NBA training camp and um, I end up in uh, Tbilisi, Georgia on a team that was stacked full of Americans to basically walk through the Georgian league because our, our owner was this, I don't know if I can even say it like Georgian mafia guy, I think that like got exiled from the, from the country, but wanted to own this team and like, beat up on the on the league so we had like seven americans we had some um some really good players and i was there for six weeks they didn't give me a dime and so 
Oh I came home, signed back in the D-League, went down in the Pan Am games, played with the – because you had to sign with the D-League to play in the Pan Am games. Did you have to do that. FIBA then with all that, the FIBA courts? To get your, no, I didn't even, I didn't even start it because it's like five or ten grand to start the lawsuit. They owed me just under 20 grand. Um, yeah. I just wasn't worth it. Like the team – yeah, the team probably would have gone bankrupt and, you know yeah. – it was every, I swear, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, like our translator, he would come up to me like, all right, Greg, like, oh, the money just got transferred last night. So uh, it takes a day. So on Wednesday, it'll be here on Wednesday. Oh, yeah, it, it just went through. It got delayed. So it'll be here on Friday. Oh, Friday rolls around. Six weeks then, of that. Uh, we did like a little two-week kind of a preseason traveling stint wherever we were in Lithuania, Latvia, and all that. Come to find out later that the t- that the coach was paying for our hotels, um, and like I I told them before before like well, a few days before I left, I was like, "You guys need to give me transfer me a thousand dollars into my account. Just give it to me and I'll stay. If you don't do that, I'm leaving." Monday, Wednesday, Friday come about, and then so we landed back from from Lithuania or Latvia get back to my apartment, book a flight home for Expedia on Expedia. Then literally like I was in my apartment for four hours to pack and I got in a taxi and went home and told the coach when I landed, I was like, all right, like appreciate the opportunity, but I'm out. He like, what do you mean you're leaving? It's like, cause I told you, you need to pay me. Like I'm not doing this shit for free. And that was so. You're lucky yeah. you had the options though financially to leave. I know a lot of guys that get stuck. Yeah, and I mean, I at the time, I mean, I was still still young. Like I had no no strings attached anywhere. I could just kind of go, and I'm we kind of knew that this that the G League or the D League was still kind of the 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 fall the fall there, and um, and I don't know. I just always kind of felt like I needed my real NBA shot, and I had had a couple tastes here and there, and I just was just kind of ready for that for that one opportunity to stick and then um and then yeah so then I come back the after the Pan Am games and go to training camp with Skyforce we played I don't know how many games and then lockout ends and we go back and it helped that like you get like so kind of bring everything back like I was in probably the best shape of my life going into training camp in Boston and to go to a training camp with Doc Rivers and a bunch of old guys I remember our first day, we were like, we'd gone maybe not even two hours. And then Doc's like, all right, like, bring it in. I'm thinking, like, all right, like, what's going to be next? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, oh, bring it in. Like, we're done? Like, are you kidding? Like, that's it? It was my fourth training camp of the season. I had got my ass kicked in Georgia by those guys running sprints for hours. The Pan Am, the Pan Am stuff was super competitive because we had a lot of good guys that, there was a lot of good guys that didn't make that team. And then we go to Sioux Falls, feeling pretty good. I'm, you know, one of our top guys in that team and feeling pretty good. And then this Celtics thing comes up, and I was just – I remember I was we were, I was in the van with uh, Keon Dooling from the hotel going to the facility that first morning at camp. And Keon's kind of like, you know, Keon's been in the league for 10, 12 years at this point. And it's like, man, he's like, you nervous? I kind of looked at him. I was like, I'm not nervous. I'm ready. Like, this is – this was my opportunity, and he talked about that later on. He was like, I don't know if I ever heard him say they weren't nervous before camp, but I was like, this was as ready as I was ever going to be, and this was going to be my shot, and some stars had to align for everything to happen. And I can't believe you can't say you were somewhat nervous stepping on the court with KG, Paul I Pierce, tr- you know, Ray Allen, you know, I tried, I tried not to Ray think John. about it. Like, I, get, like, I did get a little starstruck at first, like I went walking in the locker room, like, Head down, mouth shut. Like, all right, just don't, don't look at these guys too. So just go out there and play. Like, just um, kind of a reminder. I had to remind myself, like, this is the same game and playing in the driveway forever. So I had a couple of those moments as in college and even like as the pros later on, where um, some stuff just kind of came together. And but yeah, so I tried to I had to talk myself out of just don't think about this, just go and play. And that's kind of the whole my whole mentality that season and. I think that's why, I, I don't know, I think that's why I got along with KG so well because I just he worked. stayed I think out of his way. Yeah. But also, like, when he would talk, I was, I'm sitting there listening to his stories going, just, 
And then what? And then what happened? Oh my, like, I was just on the tip of every, on the tip of his tongue. And I like everything he's saying, I'm hanging on whatever he's saying. And, and then when he tell me to F off and get out of the way, then, hey, all right, that's fine too. Like, I'll just <laughs> that was going to be one of, my, one of my next questions. Like, how was practicing with Rajon Rondo, Ray Allen, Pierce, dueling, Marquise Daniels, Keith, Jermaine O'Neal? Yeah, those <laughs> – I mean, just going down that list, like, that's some serious NBA, you know, heavyweights. And um, luckily that season, we didn't practice a whole lot because of the lockout season. We were playing almost four nights a week and back-to-backs and back-to-back-to-backs and three and five and all this. So practice wasn't – it was more, you know, a lot of walkthroughs and a lot of more conceptual stuff and some mental stuff. And I think that that side of the game has always come pretty natural to me. Like, I think – I can see see the game pretty well. And so um, I just was trying to, like I said, soak some stuff in. And when those guys would talk, you just try to listen. And, um, you know, KG leads by example. He's he's vocal. Ray Allen does things the right way. Paul Pierce gets his work in. Like, you know, I think Rajon was probably, you know, one of my favorite teammates of all time. Like the game just came so easy to him that I think he would – make it more challenging at times for himself and just because it was boring because it was so easy. Like he just, he's playing chess out there when everybody else is playing checkers. And um, yeah, that was looking back again, like even hearing you say it, like I, sometimes I forget, like it was how good that team was, like how many. That was amazing. Yeah. Guys we had. Yeah. I mean, first I, I want to kind of, before we get into that, the, the cool story that I did read before we get into how that season finished, um, and I hope this is a true story because, again, I, I don't know if I can always trucks Wikipedia, but I hope you can tell me if it's true or not. But it says your debut, you had the six blocks. Then following up with that, you got a nice little deal with Nike right away. Is that a true story? Is that not a true story? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I didn't get, like, a huge Nike contractor. In, like, I just got, like, the, the standard kind of – um, wear my stuff. <laughs> because, yeah, exactly. Like the free gear kind of a thing, but, but it was kind of cool. Cause like, I mean, I literally, I, I, I was wearing all through training camp. I was wearing these black busted ass sneakers that I had, that I actually had bought myself. Like I had, I'm wearing like shoes that I paid for. And then I'm looking around the, the room and KG's lockers overflowing, like the equipment room in the back. I mean, I'm, I know Johnny Joe, like his, and I know now how, like, how stacked those back rooms are. All you got to do is ask. But I was just like, I was too afraid to ask for gear. I was too afraid to tell them that I don't wear a 4X tall. Like, I'll just take whatever the biggest, baggiest stuff. I still got some in the closet here at the cabin that um, is just never gets worn because it, it hangs past my knees. And so if anybody else even tries to wear it, like, it's it's the biggest clothing you ever met in your life. And I, I still, like, I... I tell my buddies and stuff now, like the only reason why I was number 54 is because I was the big white guy at training camp that nobody thought was going to hang around. Like I was, I was the extra and obviously I wasn't going to take 34 from Paul, but, but also like when I got to other places, I was like, what do you mean? What do you want my number? What do, what do I want my number? Like I'm allowed to pick that. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody told me this in Boston. They're like, all right, give me number one. You're ready yeah, to switch you got, it up. <laughs> you got extra. You got extra shoes back there. Like, I don't I need to be wearing these these heavy ass black shoes with white socks because that's the only pair I have. Like, I I was throwing in my backpack after after training camp because thought I had to take my own stuff. <laughs> that is that is crazy. What what year did you finally figure that out? Was that after the Celtics or? Yeah, it was, it was my second year when I got to Minnesota. and um, Clayton, our equipment guy in Minnesota, was an awesome guy. And he, he hooked it he up. He hooked me up with some stuff, yeah. What's but actually, thing? so way before that, when I got called up by Minnesota, one of those years in, when I was in Sioux Falls, I got called up at the end of the season for one game. Um, so that whole summer I worked out with Al Jefferson in Minnesota. Like I was in Minneapolis all the whole summer. And I remember the day, the day I got cut, I came into my locker at the time and there was like five boxes of shoes on my, on my chair. I was like, Oh, like, nice. I'm maybe I'll find Like, maybe they're going to keep me. Like I'm getting hooked up with some shoes. And then like, I, they asked to come for me to come and up to the office. I think before we even got a workout in and told me I was getting cut. And 
come back down. I was like, what about all these shoes, Clay? I was like, he's like, oh, sorry, those were supposed to be the locker next to you. I was like, oh. <laughs> so Clay, like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> set me up, man. They just set me up. Well, going back to the Celtics season, was it was it crazy your first year? You're sitting there and you're playing on – you guys were number one in the division, I think, on the Atlantic Conference. I think you finished 39-27. and 27. Um, unfortunately, things didn't end the way you wanted them to end. But you guys played. Who was it? You lost to the Heat, right? And yeah, LeBron. we were. Uh, that was when LeBron went to LeBron mode in the playoffs. We were, yeah. we were up three-two. Paul Pierce hits a three in LeBron's face in Miami. And all we could, all we could talk about that whole next day and a half was Paul was telling us how much fun it was to to go to the finals and to win it, and because um, we really felt we had something special that we we had a chance and. We came back in Boston. Um, LeBron has 40-something. We lose by 20, I think. And I swear, I, I think I played most of the fourth quarter just because the game was kind of out of hand. It's like, all right, we're saving up for game seven. So um, I'll take garbage playoff time any time I can. And I just remember that the, um, the Garden was chanting, let's go Celtics for most of the fourth quarter. Through timeouts, through free throws, just like – that, that's the Boston crowd. It was their diehard, some of the most unbelievable fan base, and like because they were just all right. Like let's pump these guys up for Game Seven. Like all right, we'll 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 concede this this game, and we just got to go down to down to Miami and put up a fight. And we we came up just a little bit short, but um, I remember after that Game Seven in Miami, I remember sitting in my locker, and I we weren't flying out till the next day. But I'm just I'm sitting there. I was like I didn't want to take my jersey off because it was like I didn't. I didn't want this to end. Like this was my kind of perspective wise. Like this was like, this was busting my ass to get to this spot. You know, got to the Eastern Conference Finals game seven. Guys play a lot of years in the league to not ever get to the playoffs. And um, I was fortunate enough to get that far and get a real taste of what, what something special could have been. And I just, I remember I didn't want that moment to end. I didn't want that season to end because I knew when I took that jersey off, you know, then just all the business stuff comes into play, and I didn't know if I was going to be back next year and all that. I was just like, oh, this, this, this being a Celtic feels really good, and I just didn't want, didn't want that to end. So I just, I was one thing that's always kind of stuck with me too. What's it like being on the court with LeBron as a, as the opponent? Like, is he really just a crazy freak of nature? And yeah, I mean, it's it's honestly, hard to like, it, tell it, on it TV. Is, it, can, it can be, it can be intimidating. You know, like a guy that. A guy that big and strong shouldn't be that fast. And a guy that big, strong, and fast shouldn't be that smart. And a guy that is that skilled offensively shouldn't be able to be there defend. Like he's he defies all these odds of like, you know, you try to find some flaws in his game, and there's there's not a whole lot to find. Um, you know that that year when Boston in that series we we switched we switched pick and rolls and kind of tried to bait him into shooting mid range jump shots. And remember there was a couple times where. I'd switch out. I'm literally, I'm six or eight feet back. Just like, you know, shoot it, shoot it. And he pulls up for his jumper and I just try to close out and he misses it. Bench is going crazy. Yeah, Steamer, good D. It's like, I, he just missed the shot. Like, I, like, I just, that, but that was, you know, that was the game plan. That was, that was, you know, another big lesson where I was like taught, like, if you follow the game plan, like if we ask you to, to do these things, you just go do those things. So no matter what big or small, it is in the in the big picture. Like, if we're telling you to bait him into shooting those, and he makes nine of them in a row, that's that's what we asked you to do. And that that goes the blame goes somewhere else. So that's that's something that we adjust from later on. But um, kind of that star in your own role. Like it was my job to go and try to make him shoot jump shots and to hard foul him and all those you know all those things that maybe don't show up on a stat sheet or don't realize even in the moment of like how important those things can be to a to win in a series, first of all, winning a game, but then winning a series. With uh, with the transitioning from the Celtics to the Timberwolves, were you, I mean, you had to be pretty sad then. Because, I mean, you got to hope you were trying to stay there. Or were you just like, you know what, I'll go where I'll go? <clears throat> so so Danny Ainge actually called me um, the night before free agency opens up at midnight, whatever. He calls me at 11.30, 11.45 that night and just, just wanted – he just he called me and told me he's like he's like Greg he's like we appreciate everything you did and he said all this in the locker room 
um, a while after when we kind of had a post game meeting too, but uh, our post season meeting, um, he was just he just said he's like, we'd love to we'd love to bring you back, but he's like you've you played well enough to earn your spot in this league, and you need to go and make more money than we're than we're going to pay you next year. And so I just thought that was kind of a, a always a classy move by him, and um, then that kind of got me thinking a little bit bigger picture and outside of it and a little more forward wise in the future of what it can mean for me, my family to, to make an amount of money that I could never imagine. And, um, you know, so then we kind of moved on from there, but then to be, then to sign in Minnesota, like it was, I was, I was ecstatic, like just to be close to home, you know, a, a city and a place I'm familiar with people where I knew, you know, I played all over the world at this point. And just to be in the same time zone, that was, remember that was a big, that was a big bonus. Like, you know, I, I got to drive home on some breaks, you know, a couple of times for some pretty serious personal stuff that wasn't under the best conditions. But at the same time, like I got to hop in my truck and I drove for four hours and I was home, not, not a 12 hour flight, not 11 hour time difference, not a 23 hour, you know, day of travel. So Minnesota was um, definitely a blessing. Then I end up, I end up meeting my wife there. So I mean, that's that's a yeah. big bonus as well. <laughs> that is, that's probably the best thing that could ever happen, right? Exactly. Um, so going from that winning culture, then to a rebuilding, which which kind of the Wolves have still been trying to figure it out. Um, was that pretty tough? You know, coming. I, Rick Adelman had a lot of hype around him coming in. I mean, Kevin Love was there. You, you went from, from an older team, but a very successful older team, to a, another really older team. I mean, there was an old Andre Karolinko, Josh Howard, Brandon Roy. You also had uh, Nikola Pekovic. You talk about a mob guy. There's one, too. <laughs> yeah, Peck, man. We go, we go on on Peck stories. Um, <laughs> but, no, it, was, it definitely was, it was different. I mean, you know, even going back to my high school and college, I think I, think I lost four or five games in high school. And then in Wisconsin, we were always, you know, top of the Big Ten. So it took my first couple of years of playing overseas on, like I said, like low-budget teams. And um, I, didn't, I never really lost. Like, even even when I played other sports, like, we were always we were always pretty good. So I was fortunate that way. And, yeah, like, losing – nobody nobody's a competitor likes to lose. And, like, so you never really get used to it. And, um, I mean, it, it sucked. That second time I was in – Turkey, we played after we got out after we lost in the like the Euro Challenge. So you play one, uh, you play one game a week. You play on the weekends, Friday or Saturday, and we lost like eight or nine in a row. And so that's, I mean, that's two months of yeah. every Monday morning at six a or seven a.m. We had to come in for our for our conditioning practice, and it was like. What's going to change here? Nothing. Are we? We are on our third head coach. We had twelve different guys come in. Um, the Americans were. Our minutes were up and down. Like me and Jan Yagla, German guy, awesome guy. Me and him kind of. We got the blame a couple times for games that we lost. We didn't even play the last four minutes. It's like we were up when we, we were up when he took us out, and then we lose, and then it's our fault because you're playing this twenty-year-old Turkish kid who can't get an offensive rebound. We can't get a defense rebound and then we get our asses shoot after the game. And so it's like, um, you know, like I said, just lo- losing sucks as a competitor and you just try to make your most of it. And then I think that year, I think we set a record for like most amount of games missed due to injury. That was, I think part of like the, oh. the Brandon Roy experiment just didn't work. Um, you know, Kevin, had no knees three years before that. Yeah. Kevin, um, Kevin's hand thing and uh, Karolinko's back and, Chase Budner got hurt his knee and um, jumping too much. Yeah, but it was <laughs> it was me it was me JJ JJ Barrett Ricky Rubio Dante Cunningham Derek Williams like it was us like four we we're like all right like we got a lot of we got some big shoes to fill and like we got a lot of <laughs> we got a lot of stuff to accomplish and we to to give those guys credit like we went out there and we bust their ass like we just we came up short we lose. Losing the fourth quarter by 10, 12 points, like, well, we got 70% of our payroll on the IR. So, yeah. like, so we just, you know, we just kind of knew that we just have to come in and 
play as hard as we can. And the NBA is so talented from top to bottom that on any given night we could have stole a win. But at the same time, when when your top dogs are doing what they do, I mean, there's there's just guys that are better than you, and that's just it's something that you got to learn to accept and stuff you try to work on in the off season and get better at. But at the same time, I mean, call a spade a spade. I mean, I'm, I was a backup center for a reason. Like, yeah. I'm not going to stop. Uh, there was one night we played we played Utah towards the end of that season. Al Jefferson put put Utah on his back. They had to win out. They had to win like six or seven games in a row to have a chance at the eight seed. And we're playing him towards the towards the end of the game and or towards the end of the, that season in that stretch. And I think he he had, I think I played the most minutes I ever did. I played like 42 minutes that night. And he had 42 points. And so I told Rick on the bus, on the plane the next day, I was like, hey coach, you know, if you only would have played me 35, we probably would have won, because then Al would only have 35 points. And <laughs> you know, then we we went to Voss by six. So there's there's some guys in the in the front row of the stands giving me a hard time that I couldn't guard him. And so the he was making, he, he made more he made more 15 foot jump shots that night than he had the whole season. Oh, and yeah. he kind of he just like I said he put the team on his back when he needed to. And I knew I know now from that first time I was in Minnesota we worked out all the time. And he's he's got no left hand and I knew the postmans that were coming. But I there's a reason why he was making teens of millions of dollars and I was making two, you know, like <laughs> that's what he's getting paid for. He's getting paid to bust the backup's ass. <laughs> that, that, uh, that, I mean, he's, he's kind of forgotten about, you know, especially in the KG trade. He was a, uh, I mean, he didn't have much defense at all. He didn't really show up on that side of the court, but I mean, his offense, he, he had offense. He was a walking bucket. He, yeah. everybody in the gym knew that he, he had no left hand, and you couldn't stop him from doing what he wanted to with his right. Like that long, the, the elongated pump thing he had, and that right hook, right hand jump hook. I just wonder what he could over. have done if he was a little thinner. He just looked like every time he ran, it looked like it hurt. I'm like, man, it doesn't look right. He was, you know, he was not a small guy. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, after the Wolves, you ended up with the Pelicans. And that's another really cool roster. I, I went through all your rosters, and every one of them, you've had really, really cool teammates to, to, to see Anthony Davis, Tyreek Evans, uh, Eric Gordon, Drew Holiday, who's a personal favorite, and then Austin Rivers being just – I thought that was cool because that's a former coach's son, and then to play with him. Um, what was that like? I mean, going against Anthony Davis, AD, who's arguably a yeah. top 10, top five player in the NBA. Uh, I don't remember if it was – if that was – 82nd or third year, but obviously a, a young Anthony Davis. Um, Springy. There was there was signs back then of like, all right, this guy's gonna be something special. He's he's talented. He works his butt off. He wants he wants to be something great, and um, so that was a, definitely fun to be a part of. That season was goofy too. We had you know Ryan Anderson was on that team too. Um, we dealt with some injuries. We dealt with some other stuff. Um, we just, I don't know, we couldn't seem to put it together. And that was, that was a season where, um, where, yeah, like I was kind of putting the starter role, but still not like a ton of minutes. And, um, I wish I would have done some things differently. Just mindset wise, I was not in a great place for most of that season mentally and let myself get a little out of, out of whack a few times. And, um, I actually saw, saw Monty Williams before the game this year and, uh, Stuck my, stuck my head in the locker room just real quick, just to say hi. And he kind of kind of stops, looks at me, goes, he goes, you're trying to, he's like, you're trying to do this side? He's like, after all the grief you gave me in New Orleans, after all the grief you gave me that year, like, now you're trying to be on this side of it? And it's kind of like, yeah, you know, I probably probably would have done some things differently if I would um, be given another opportunity to, to, to deal with that, like I said, deal with that whole season. But I've been lucky, man. I played with some. Awesome point guards. Drew Holiday, another one of my favorite guys. I mean, Ricky, I love. I mean, Ray Ricky Lowry. Rubio, Rajon, and and Drew, like. And Kyle Lowry. I mean, that's and then Kyle Lowry, like that's. It's a it's pretty a dream. <laughs> pretty, there's not a lot of guys. There's not a lot of point guards I put ahead of those guys. So that, I was obviously very fortunate to to have that come true. Was was some of the hardest parts with the the Pelicans just that transition from 
your now wife being back in Minnesota to then going somewhere else and leaving your family in that comfort? Yeah, it was a little bit of that. I think, um, I don't know, looking back, I think they, like I said, they asked me to, they asked me to take a starter role when I don't know if that was the best fit. Um, you know, as a backup kind of for a reason and to, you know, my backup role, I'm kind of a shot blocking defensive big. And then when you put me with the best shot blocker in the league, I mean, Anthony Davis was going to clean up anything that I couldn't get to, or he was going to get there before I was. Um, and so I just, I don't think me and AD were a great compliment on the floor together. Um, but, but again, it was just, it, it was, it was a culmination of a lot of things. I never really felt that welcome by the New Orleans fan base. I think I took a lot of, took a lot of, I don't know, I think a little unwarranted heat just from our tough season. It was, well, let's blame Steamer. And I mean, that's how fans should be. Like they're allowed their opinion and um, I just never, I don't know, never really, never really found myself that comfortable there for a number of different things. But um, like I said, looking back, I definitely could have handled it better than what I did and kind of live and learn type of thing. Well, then you end up at another franchise that's that playing very well, finishes first in the division too, uh, in the East with the Toronto Raptors, which is a crazy squad if you think about it. With uh, Demar Derozan, Kyle Lowry, Lou Williams. I mean, and another college great actually with Tyler Hansborough, which was probably a sleeper pick in there that I threw in. Um, but that was kind of a, a tough ending of the year there after such high hopes. Yeah, I mean that was that was a really fun season too. Um, I didn't. I didn't get a. I didn't get a ton of minutes that year, so that that was a challenge too. But um, that's where it kind of goes back. Like it's always fun to win, and you know we weren't going to rock the boat by making a bunch of changes or mixing stuff up um, when when we were winning so much as we were winning as much as we were. But I just know that we had we had some pretty intense three on three games with <laughs> me, Tyler Hansborough. Um, James Johnson, actually, he'd come play with us once in a while. Um, no, like Mark, um, Landry Fields, he was on that team. So, like, we had – and then we threw in a couple, the young guys, Bruno Caboclo and Lucas Nagira. Like, we we had some pretty – we always, like, we joke, like, we had the best three-on-three squad in the league because we had, like, six guys – six or seven of us that weren't – Chuck Hayes was in there. Like, we were – some guys, like – we felt like could play, but we just weren't getting opportunities, and we just we just rolled with it because we were winning. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. We got to be supportive, teammates, whatever whatever it takes. Be a star within your own role. Um, that was the year I got pretty close with Jonas Valanciunas too. There was a lot of times where um, me and him would have some battles in practice, and just I'd let him vent to me about some stuff going on, and I'd give him my my point of view and um, try to help him along too. And I think that's where that's a little bit where like my kind of my itch for coaching started where it's like you know what I think there's a chance I could I could help some of these guys out like again like I'm big on perspective and like what looking at things from multiple different views viewpoints and you know there's there's not always a clear right and wrong and maybe maybe you're both right in certain ways or there's maybe a, an outside option but, um, but yeah that was that was a fun year too um Funny, fun, fun fact that somebody told me after, I think, so I, I didn't, again, I didn't really play that whole year, but I played like the last three minutes of the, of game four when we were, when we, it was over. And so yeah. I think I had like, I had six points in those like three minutes or something. So my, my PPR for like points per minute or whatever in the playoffs that year was, it was like me and then LeBron and then <laughs> D Wade. And like, I was above everybody. I was like doubled up. It's like, oh, all we had to do was play me for, 25 30 minutes a game and I'd average 40 in the playoffs so you know the things that could have been you know that was, that was a really crazy series I, I remember all those series the Celtics one and then this one too with the uh the Raptors because I, I mean everybody thought you guys would kind of steamroll the Wizards and then yeah it was that was such a that was a weird year like we yeah. were franchise record and wins um you know we were we were playing well all year, but then we had like a, we had a stretch where we lost like seven out of eight or something crazy where we just couldn't seem to buy a bucket. We just were all over the place. And um, so we're just like, I don't know. We were, 
a really good team, but we just we didn't have it all figured out yet either. And then once you get the playoffs, you know, all that stuff just gets highlighted. And when some there's some cracks in the armor, some some stuff that you guys don't that you don't do well consistently, those seem to shine very quickly in the playoffs. And that's that's kind of what happened. And and a tough matchup still, too. Yeah, tough matchup and all yeah. that like. You guys could have picked any other team. You guys would have probably been just fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but exactly. the Wizards just had yeah. your number. Exactly, and it's just yeah, it's it's weird. Everybody, like I said, NBA players, NBA teams are so good that it's hard. It's hard to it's hard to win every night, and it's hard to it's hard to beat teams. But it's you can get beat by anybody. So, what do you, what do you think about the NBA season moving forward? Do you think they're going to figure out how to 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 make this happen again, or you think it's kind of it's done? Or I I don't know. I I hope we get I hope we get something figured out here soon. Um, I would hate to see the whole season get shifted where it delays everything else. And I know there's some, some talks of possibly starting next year on Christmas or new year's. Um, selfishly, I like my summers off and I'd, you know, I'd like, you know, to have that time off my family and stuff when, when we have those three good weeks of weather in Minnesota, (laughs) Um, but but at the same time, it's still it's kind of like whatever whatever our season leads to. It's as long as it comes back, and it's it's going to come back. We just got to try to be patient and figure out what's best. I'm I'm very glad I'm not in a position of a lot of power to make these decisions because I think people are going to say you're wrong either way. You either acted too quickly and were wrong, or you waited too long. So it's it's tough. Um, I just I think people miss sports now more than ever. Um, oh yeah. But it's just going to be hard to. Our, it's not going to be the same to play not in front of people, you know, because that's obviously our fans are number one. Um, so I, I don't know. I, there's just there's a lot of variables about what 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 could be or what's going to happen. And to be honest, like what what's the right thing? I don't know. I don't, and I don't know if there is a single right answer. I, I just don't know how it's possible with that thought of finishing up at Disney World is even a, a thing. I don't know how they possibly think that would work. That yeah, I don't know. It's that would be pretty intense. It would be <laughs> super intense, and I don't know if it. It may sound good on paper, and you know, and, and if it gets and if it gets everybody their full contracts and everybody paid, and maybe that'll that'll help. But I don't know. I I don't know what I would want if I was higher up on the coaching totem pole, or if or if I was a player yet. I don't know if I'd want that either. Like. You know, obviously you want everybody to be safe and do what's right, but at the same time, you as a player, you want to play. And, like, everybody's trying to trying to go play. And whatever that looks like, you know, back in the day in some of those D-League games, we, we played in empty arenas, basically, or we, you know, played in practice facilities and all that. And it, it doesn't feel the same. It doesn't quite feel right. But if that's what it takes to produce the product, then I think they're going to have to do something like that too. The the one cool thing that I heard was that uh, did you f- hear that Spencer Din- Dinwiddie uh, like his idea of a tournament to because he he was just saying there's no way you could play a series and stuff and maybe you bring a series when it kind of gets to the end but that yeah yeah the t- I think the tournament style has kind of been brought about too which which would be awesome for you know for us this year when the situation we're in yeah. like to give us a chance I mean granted it's probably going to be the the biggest asterisk championship in sports history this season but nobody will ever take it away from whoever wins it either. Like you can be the 1920 champs, like looking back in the record books, that's what it'll say, whatever that outcome is, you know, however it was, may not have had to win 20, 21 games or 24 games over the playoffs, but. How are they going to pick back up enough. if they didn't even have hoops? You know what I mean? Some of these guys like yeah. Jason Tatum hasn't touched a hoop in seven weeks or a ball in seven weeks. Yeah. It's, it's forced guys to get really creative with, workouts and kind of kind of find out what guys are made of and who can get creative and who can get desperate in a sense too of like what what's it going to take I just think I think Doc Rivers put a video on his Instagram the other day of uh this kid like shooting a basketball up this flight of stairs it's like oh that was you know like that's where his bucket could be and not that that's what NBA players need to be focused on but um you know if if you want to get a hoop, you want to get your hands on a basketball and find a court and stuff that's that's safe. There's uh, there's ways to do that. 
Hugh, I know you had some uh, questions from some some long lost friend of Greg's that you want to bring up. Yeah, so um, I do have a a question oh, right out right out of left field. Um, it is from the some Randolph ties, so this might ring a bell. But who is the best Tillema brother? Oh man, I you know this is actually fairly easy for me because I've been saying this since forever that I think Tyler's the best Tillema. Danny was the most athletic. Um, but Ryan Ryan set the bar high, but those guys, I just think. Danny and Tyler were both those guys that were, they were the, the little brothers who would jump out at every time out or halftime and they'd be shooting hoops like during timeouts and they have to like get rushed off by the, by the refs. And I don't know what grade it was that Danny was in where he was starting to like try to do dunks and stuff in between. And um, I just think we, we were just so good that we showed Tyler how to become such a good player. That it was, <laughs> Ryan paved the way for him, but uh this will be great because uh, I actually got this question from Tyler. I, I texted him about, I don't know, 30 minutes before we started. So he'll nice. love this. Shout out to those Tyler. Are, those are my guys, man. The, the Tilma boys, um, TNT, Danny Tilma, those guys, man. They, uh, they, they're usually two of, the, two of the first guys that make it to all my big parties that I have up at the cabin here. And I think Ryan, Ryan's made it to a couple too. But, um, and yeah, those guys – spent a lot of time with both of those guys as little kids. And then it still seems a little bit weird. Like they're still, they're little brothers to me. They're like, they're like just, you know, the fun guys like having around. Yeah. I played against Tyler and uh, for about three years in college. And I, I told him he's my favorite. We act lefty because we're both uh, left-handed. So he can, he can definitely ball. Man, they're Danny Tilma. If Danny Tilma was two inches taller, he'd have been some of Yeah. He's, I think Dan, Danny still has hoop dreams of making a pro roster somewhere. I think if, he, if there was a rec league all star all star team, he'd, he'd make every one of them. He's uh, <laughs> he just he lives the hoop, man. He lives it. And uh, my last question: All time Randolph starting five. Put some pressure yeah, on you. That's tough. Nobody's gonna know any of these names, but I'm still gonna throw a few of these out here. Uh, Kevin Flagner's got to be number one. He averaged 40 points a game, I think, his senior year, something like that. Um, wow. Put Bruce Waterworth on there as my two. Uh, Ty Selk at the four. I'll put Ryan at the three, and I'll I'll be that I'll be that jerk and put myself as the starting five. I can I put my own face on the Mount Rushmore? Is that is that legal? Is that it is today on Elite Team Athletic. Yeah, Definitely legal. For literally for a town of under two thousand people, we've had a, a ton of really talented guys to come through. And I even know when we were in high school, like I said, we had really good teams. We would have some of the older guys come back and play. Um, Barry Van Beek and just Mike Grieger, all these guys that haven't touched organized basketball in five, ten years, or they'd still just play on rec leagues whatever they'd come in they'd they'd bust their ass they'd, they'd give up 100 points in a game against the against the old guys they would just come down and shoot threes and run fast breaks and they'd they just play the right way like they'd never turn it over they just they're bigger stronger they just knew how to play the game the right way and i think we got we got really spoiled as randolph like kids growing up and fans and i mean i know there was they won a couple state championships quite a few after I had even left and they won a few before. And so when it got to be the state tournament time or tournament time, there would be people wouldn't go to the regional final game or the sectional semifinal games. Like, Oh, I'll just wait till they get to state or I'm not going Friday. I'll just wait for Saturday's game where like some of these other towns, they, they shut it down for their teams in the regional finals for the first time in 20 years. And, and we're like, our fans would be like, I'm not going to the first state game. I'll just wait for the final. Like, why would I go to the first one? And you're just going to play yeah. tomorrow again. So. Luxury. Uh, I never yeah. had that luxury uh, in high school. So. Like <laughs> I said, we, nice. we, we won. Yeah. That's why I said we got, we got so spoiled with winning. We, we went undefeated my, we went undefeated my senior year. We lost two games my junior year and two, three games my sophomore year. Jeez. That's absurd. So, 
That's absurd. And they were all the bigger schools. They were all the, the, the schools that were two, three times our size. And then uh, junior, the two teams, we lost to two Division One teams. We were Division Four. So something in the water, man. There's definitely something in the water over yeah. there. Well, Greg, don't give away our secrets. That's your secrets. <laughs> yeah, Kyle, Kyle, don't give it away. We sell rocket water at the games, but you got to know where to find it. All right, I won't put that in the uh, the info when we post yeah. this. I'll keep that out. Greg, we really appreciate you coming on here and telling your story, and we'd love to have you back whenever you want to come back. If you want to talk, no, sports. appreciate it. this was this was fun. Appreciate you guys letting give me a little opportunity to talk some hoops. It's been a little while to reminisce some of those stories and. We'd love to tell us more. Whenever you want to do it, you got all the teammates, you got all the experiences. People are going to want to hear what you have to say. Hit me up when I'm at the cabin. I always feel a little more like storytelling when I'm up here for some reason, but um, perfect. It'll work. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it, guys. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you.